Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. For example, you could get a sample episode of Competitive Strategy with Kevin Coyne. Kevin Coyne is an ex-McKinsey partner, former worldwide head of strategy, and he had served something like over 25 CEOs on a personal level, on a one-to-one basis over his career. Kevin also has a program called How to Become a McKinsey Partner. It's the first time ever a McKinsey partner has gone on record talking about what is actually required to become a partner and you'll find it's very different from what you think is required how to develop deep insights which i have put together one of our most popular programs the electric car startup you will get sample episodes of all of those programs and more if you sign up to this list so that said i hope you enjoy today's episode hi everyone and welcome to another strategy skills podcast in today's episode we are going to be talking about how nations develop using technology and the roles that technology companies play in the nation's development. And the way we're going to do it is we're going to discuss Samsung. And I have a guest today, Jeffrey Kane, who is the author of Samsung Rising, a new book. It's actually one of the best books I've read that explains how Samsung became the corporate giant it is today, where it contributes something like, I think, 15 to 20% of South Korea's total exports, which is a significant number. So the interesting thing about the discussion I'll have with Jeffrey is when you talk about Samsung and we talk about the Asian tech companies, we tend to forget just how important and how good they were at marketing. We tend to focus on the technology side of it and we kind of give Apple and American companies a lot of credit for their marketing skills. But Samsung was very good at marketing. And there are many examples in the book of where they were very strategic and very tactical at times to get their message out. But the part I liked the most about the discussion with Jeffrey was how he explained how a country develops by using these tech companies as catalysts. So we start up discussing Samsung, but you'll see as the discussion goes on, it becomes a discussion about country economics. And if you if you like the discussion, I enjoyed uh, Jeffrey's book, Samsung Rising. I believe it's now available for sale. It's a good book. It's a good book because it reminds me of those books that were written about um, banks just after the financial crisis, whereby they documented how banks had developed, the decisions they made, and how those decisions had contributed to either the success or the failure of a bank. And the interesting thing about Jeffrey is that if you follow the discussion, we realize that the things that made Samsung successful in the past are the things that now holding them back. And we have a discussion about how companies need to adjust to that. And the final thing we look at is that even though Samsung sees itself as an insurgent to Apple, the incumbent, Samsung has to adjust and change because today they are the incumbent against Chinese insurgents. And the question becomes how they can do that. So it's a very good podcast where we talk about company strategy, country strategy, technology strategy, disruption strategy, and how all of this comes together to dictate how a country sets its strategy for a certain sector with the help of different players. So I hope you enjoyed. And with that, 
let's start the discussion. Let's hope we get lucky on the third attempt. Yes, how's this? Oh, much better. Okay, perfect, perfect, yeah. So I read the book. I Personally, I enjoyed the book at a personal level, which is always a good sign. Thank you. So I have a lot of questions, but not questions of questions about things I want to explore that you raised. And I think what's nice about the book is that a lot of people talk about Silicon Valley, but nobody's ever written anything about this Asian tech companies before. Yeah, and that's that's actually one of the reasons I wrote it. I uh, that's a good point because I was you know there reporting in Korea, and I just found it so fascinating that uh, you know there there were these major technology giants. There was Samsung, Sony. Yeah. Uh, big, you know, Foxconn, and then it's just like you, there's just not much information out there about them. Yeah, exactly. And the interesting thing is they're not run like a Silicon Valley company at all. When I read the book, it's a, it's like one of the most rigid corporate entities I've ever heard about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I thought that it was kind of like HBO Succession. I don't. Yes. Have you ever seen that on on HBO? Yes, now? yes, yes. I've seen it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When I was writing it, um, that that was sort of the, the that was the feeling that I was getting. I felt like I was watching an episode or a season of succession with all these shareholder battles and the dynasty and, you know, royal succession and all this. So when you were writing the book, what, one thing I'm very interested about is how you wrote the book. For example, did you did you start writing the book knowing that you're going to write about Samsung or did this come out of a series of articles and series of interviews that led you to something interesting? So actually, it came out of a little bit of both. So I, I never really anticipated that I was going to write about yeah. Samsung in particular. So I was covering um, the whole Silicon Valley tech scene for a while. I was writing about Apple versus Samsung, writing about Google. I was writing about these big emerging yeah. tech companies about 10 years ago. And I got an invitation to Korea for the Fast Company magazine. We were going to do a big story on Samsung, a cover story. Uh, and the story was going to be about you know this, this tech giant that's gobbling yeah. up you know, all the competitors and how they're, this was just as they were starting to, you know, release their smart, their first smartphones and go to war with Apple. It was before Steve Jobs sued them. And we knew that something big was going to happen because we had a feeling that this, um, you know, there was a sudden new player that nobody had really heard of that was suddenly putting up a fight against Apple and um, making inroads against Google and, and just suddenly kind of cementing itself in the Silicon Valley world. So, uh, you know, went there. I went there to work for two days. Interviewed a lot of about two dozen uh, top executives. These were kind of executive vice yeah. president level people, and um, I got fascinated with Samsung in particular because it was just so it was just so opaque and it was so big and it was everywhere. And I couldn't really figure out the true story of this company. I mean, I had this nagging feeling that there was this giant that uh, this giant sitting in the room and nobody had really taken a look and. And thought like, you know, who are these people and what do they stand for? How do they compete? How do they do strategy? You know, how do they make products? Yeah. Uh, so originally, you know, I, I knew that I wanted to write a book about Korea. And as a journalist, you know, we tend to write a lot about North Korea in particular with the crazy dictator Kim Jong-un and, yeah. uh, and uh, missile launches yes. and, you know, all concentration camps and starving children and just terrible, you know, human rights abuses. Uh, but I noticed that nobody had really been writing about South Korea, the success story, you know, how this, nobody had really written about how this, uh, this major, uh, I guess this small country had become so major in such a, a short yes. period of time. It used to be one of the poorest countries yeah. in the world. It was behind um, Sudan about wow. in 1960. Yeah, GDP smaller than Sudan. Yeah, and, I read uh, that. It was, it was impoverished after the war. Yeah, completely impoverished. And even before the war, it was already in poverty. So it was just, um, it, you know, you go, you, so if you visit Seoul today or visit anywhere in Korea, you walk around and you're in this, uh, you know, I think Time Magazine a while back called it the most wired nation in the world. 
And you just, I mean, you get off a plane there and, and just everything is super efficient. And, you know, it, it actually reminds me quite a bit of, um, you know, maybe going to, uh, you know, like Berlin or, or kind of like a yes. efficient Scandinavian or German town. But then, you know, I, I'm looking at Korea and looking at the history and thinking, come on, like there's no way, you know, this country could have emerged so quickly and become such a success story that easily, you know, there, there was definitely something behind this. And one of the big stories behind it was Samsung. So Samsung was my way in to tell a story about this country of Korea, you know, not just the company itself, but how this, this company, Samsung, uh, was tied to the success of the nation and how they built, you know, Korea into something big and how that was a part of their mission. They didn't just want to make microwaves and make you know, the latest phone and make uh, whatever, you know, make ships and make chips and, and all these different products. What they wanted to do was build Korea with them. They wanted to contribute to this, grand nation building project and you know I, I think even today you see that quite a bit like samsung is just so um it's just so massive yes. i mean you can live your entire life cradle to the grave on samsung uh it, you could literally just you know be born in a samsung hospital in korea you know you could uh go to, to a samsung school and get a samsung scholarship and you know you grow up and go to the samsung university and uh study at the samsung library and then get a job at samsung life insurance and you can use a samsung credit card and you can watch tv on your samsung tv and it'll be like a samsung funded soap opera they do they've done some production too and you know getting your samsung renault car uh you know you can like you know use your samsung smartphone your pc uh it's just literally you know you could literally die yeah and there, there's a samsung morgue and then there's a there's a cemetery that samsung consults on you can yeah. literally just live your entire life on Samsung and just become, they call it a Samsung man, you know, and you are, you've sworn, you've sworn allegiance to this company and your job is to, you know, build the nation with the company too. And you can maybe marry a Samsung employee as well. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you can join Samsung. It used to be that there was a, there was an expectation of lifetime employment. You know, if you were in Korea and you joined young, you would retire when you were 50 or, you know, maybe 60, depending on what rank you got to. And then, um, yeah, it's very old school. You, it, it would be almost like you get the company watch you uh, retire, and they send you off, and you're a part of the Samsung Alumni Association, and you still get together with your old friends and drink soju, which is a Korean uh, vodka-like liquor um, that they like to drink. Um, but I just found it fascinating. I guess um, to use maybe a North American equivalent, it would be as if uh, I guess are you calling from uh, Canada right now? I'm in Los Angeles. Uh, yeah, so so the American equivalent would be so yes, uh, you know people often do point out to me, you know what about America with the too big to fail the banks in, in yes. the two thousand eight crisis and what about you know, Apple these these major companies? I mean they're they're massive and they're so massive that it's almost like they rival governments in their size and wealth and power. Um, but uh, I think that uh, this still doesn't exist uh, in America on yes. the scale that it exists in Korea. So the the closest thing to imagine would be. That Steve Jobs, back when he was alive, you know, he ran Apple, and Apple was so big that Americans call their country the United States of Apple. Yeah. But really, you know, just Apple is everywhere in your life, and there's no like you. You come home and you have your, uh, you have like an Apple microwave and mm -hmm. Apple. You live in an Apple apartment, and you, you know, you've pretty much sworn your allegiance to Apple as a lifetime employee. But then on top of that, imagine if Steve Jobs were convicted twice of, you know, bribing <laughs> the president. And then also he was convicted of tax evasion later. And then, you know, the first time President Bill Clinton gave him a pardon and said that he's just so important to the nation. And then the second time uh, Barack Obama gave him a pardon and said that, you know, once again, he is just so important to the nation. So he can't go to jail. He had Steve Jobs has to be running Apple for the sake of America and the future of America. Yes.
Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, it's very interesting. So when you wrote the book, the book seems to be focused heavily on Samsung Mobile. Was that the intent from the beginning? Um, so actually, you know, that was one of the hard parts, to be honest, of writing the book. Um, you know, the, the fact of the matter is that Samsung has more than 50 affiliates. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are publicly traded companies, and they make um, semiconductors. They do, they've do. they done shipping in the past. They've, they've made uh, airline engines. Uh, you know, they've made the um, displays that are used on, on a lot of devices, including on iPhones. Uh, I mean, Samsung pretty much makes, they, they control the whole supply chain, and they make everything that they would need to make a new smartphone. Yes. Um, so this, you know, I wanted to tell the story of some of these other units too, but as I was doing the research, well, first of all, the, the first problem was that, you know, I, I simply can't write a 1000 page yes. book on Samsung and nobody would buy that. And unfortunately, and you know, like if, if I, if I had a publisher that would allow me to do that, I would certainly try to write it. But, um, ultimately, you know, readers want something that, you know, you, you open it, it has a clear narrative, you close it, and then you kind of come away with some lessons or some insight but then the second problem I had, it was a huge challenge, um, you know, writing about this Samsung empire. Uh, and the challenge was that there were simply so many different business units and so many people in this company. I mean, the, the conglomerate itself has more than 300,000 wow. people. Um, you know, and, and this 300,000 is massive. Yeah, and this is the entire Samsung group. I mean, if you look at Samsung Electronics alone, which is one company within this giant corporate empire, uh, they make up about 20% of South Korean exports. So one, one out of every five exports from Korea is a Samsung Electronics product of some kind. And that's not including Samsung Semiconductor or Samsung, um, uh, you know, Samsung Shipping or, you know, Samsung uh, Display or, you know, any of, any of these other affiliates. It's just, you know, it's just such a big company that ultimately you have to choose a strand that, that can carry through. And um, in the end, so I did decide to focus on mobile as the main story because the fact of the matter is that within Samsung, mobile is seen as the crown jewel. Mobile is the most prestigious of the units, and mobile is where the big decisions happen. So, you know, that's where the uh, the top leaders, so the, the founding Lee family, which is the, the three-generation dynasty that runs Samsung, uh, they'll actually be there. They'll be more involved in in trying to make big long term decisions over where mobile should be going and you know what it should be doing. Um, and then also, uh, so I don't have the latest numbers with me right now, but when I was researching this, at one point, uh, mobile made up around sixty to eighty percent of the uh, the group's um, revenues. Uh, and the, I think this was at the height of the Apple versus Samsung wars about six seven years ago. And uh, just the fact that it's so big. Uh, meant and so profitable uh, meant that a lot of the other business units were basically making decisions based on the the future demands of what mobile would need. So the yes. semiconductor units, you know, like if, if mobile puts in an order, you know, for the latest semiconductor, then of course Samsung Semiconductor is going to be trying to make that. And you know, Samsung Display is make, was making OLEDs for a long time because both Apple and Samsung needed them. So really, you know, mobile, like the the front facing businesses, are really what. Um, define the company. Uh, maybe not always, but uh, right now, that's what, what that's what's been defining them for the past ten years. And driving them, as you say, it's the front end that places orders, orders in the back end. But let's talk about some of the insights. So when I was reading the book, I assumed two, I assumed three things. One is I'll learn a lot about South Korea, which I did. So the book really mirrors that very well and shows us how you know the rise of Samsung propelled the rise of Korea and, and laid almost a, a blueprint for other large Korean conglomerates to follow. I learned a lot about Samsung, but the thing that surprised me was how aggressive Samsung is in marketing. Yes. 
I yeah. did think I would learn. The book is a lot about marketing, especially that part where you talk about how they got uh, Ellen DeGeneres to to mention Samsung and use a Samsung phone during the award ceremony. Yes, yes, and actually, uh, when I was researching this, I was it, I was totally surprised by the amount of marketing and the aggression in the marketing uh, that comes out. I, I actually, before I was writing this book, I didn't totally realize just the extent that Samsung had gone to do something like get a phone in the hands yeah. of generous. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was, it was, uh, I, I actually got kind of a chuckle out of it. It is, you know, to be fair to Samsung, it is a success story. You just mentioned that briefly for the listeners so they understand the actual lens that Samsung goes to. Yes, yes. So just to give a little backdrop first. So Samsung uh, rose on the factory floor. It was a factory floor giant, and it was staffed mainly by engineers, people in research and development who were, you know, looking for the latest patent, but ultimately people who were working hard on the factory floor. And so it had developed, like a lot of factory floor-based companies, uh, it had developed a very uh, conservative um, military-like culture where, you know, the, the top person gives the order and then everybody has to execute it. The the top person, the, the so the, the lead dynasty will lay down a vision for the long term, and then it's the job of the actual executives to execute that vision, to implement it, and to ensure that the chairman's vision is carried out. So this works really well when you're, um, you know, when you're a poor country like Korea, maybe 40 years ago, and you're just trying to make your first forays into, say, making microwaves, cheap microwaves that, for example, GE was ordering, and they would just put a GE logo on it, and that was the original Samsung model. It was the OEM, the original equipment manufacturer. This is a, the, the military model works great for that because you can produce so many cheap products at high volume and with pretty low defect rates. I mean, if, if your workforce is disciplined, if they know what they're doing, if they're following orders, then they're going to be a component supplier, they're going to be an OEM. But uh, the fact of the matter is that Korea had, you know, over the years, Korea had gone from zero to hero, so to speak, it had gone from nothing through this manufacturing model, export-driven model, to one of the biggest um, technological powerhouses in the world. And, of course, you know, naturally that, that led Samsung to uh, do battle with first with Sony, its, its first big competitor, which was from Japan. And uh, I don't know how many listeners will remember the days when Sony was basically the Apple of the world, you yes. know, about 15 years ago. I mean, Sony made the Walkman... Um, and you'd see all the cool kids walking around the campuses with their latest Walkman CD player. It made the Trinitron TV. Um, it, it had acquired Columbia Pictures for a multi-billion dollar deal in 1989. Um, it, it also had its own – so back when they had the VHS tapes, it also had a thing called the Betamax, which was like the competitor to the VHS. The um, It was like the high-quality version. And So basically Sony controlled just a huge – in terms of the media and technology sector – just had its own ecosystem of all these products that were feeding into each other. Uh, you know, just like it, it had the TV, it also had the format, the Betamax, it also had the, uh, you know, the content. It had, you know, like the Arnold Schwarzenegger films that Sony Pictures yeah. would get. Yeah, so it was, it, it was just no chance of anybody taking on Sony. And of course, you know, Samsung comes along, and um, Samsung wants to become like another Sony. It wants to release its own ecosystem of all these different TVs and components, and it wants to own the content. It tried to acquire DreamWorks a long time ago, back when Steven Spielberg was starting it. That failed. But uh, the problem is that when you're a component maker and a manufacturer, 
that doesn't lead well to that world of Hollywood and the world of, you know, how do you market a product or how do you, you know, it doesn't lead to the world of Times Square that well. You know, how do you advertise something on a giant billboard? How do you reach uh, the next generation? How do you reach the millennials? How do you get on social media? Um, it, it naturally, this corporate culture of this of militarism naturally leads to this execution culture where, you know, you're only putting out the next product without much thought to, uh, you know, what does that do for the user? What does that do for the consumer? I mean, it's just, I, I think that Samsung had a really bad habit for a long time of just releasing a new phone and then saying, oh, it has a super AMOLED display. Yes. Yes, yeah, it's just like, yeah, and, and then of course, you know, maybe that that appeals to a nerd who's really into display technology uh, and it appeals to Samsung's own engineers. It's kind of like internal propaganda, internal public relations but uh, the average person out there is, is just sitting there thinking like, okay, so I can get an iPhone that has the whole experience. It has, you know, it, it has the ecosystem. It has the software. It has, you know, nice clean apps, a nice design, a nice user interface. Um, it's virus-free mostly. You know, it's secure. Or I can get this Samsung phone that uh, that is essentially like, okay, they're telling me it has a super AMOLED display. What the heck does that mean? Yeah. And uh, this is, you know, this was the problem that Samsung was having for a really long time. They simply, you know, they, they could overtake their competitors through mass manufacturing, you know, better hardware, but they couldn't really tell a story. They just had trouble telling people who they are and what they were all about. What, you know, very what does functional, it do? Very functional. So, yeah, exactly. So, so what happened is that, so in 2010 and 2011, um, Steve Jobs was very upset with Samsung because Samsung was supplying the components to the iPhone, but then had dared to release its own smartphone called the yeah. Galaxy that had dared to compete head-on with Apple. Um, and not only that, but uh, a court did rule later in California that Samsung had ripped off a number of patents and, and awarded Apple damages. Um, Samsung countersued and claimed that Apple had ripped off its own patents, but Samsung lost that. It didn't get any damages at all. So, so clearly, you know, Apple was in the right, you know, in, in terms of a lot of these uh, claims brought against Samsung. But, uh, so the problem is that you know if you're uh, if you're a Samsung executive and you look at the big picture, so you're releasing a phone that nobody really seems to get what the point is of it. It's just like a cheaper version of the iPhone without you know the without the ecosystem, the user experience. Um, Apple's accusing you of copying them. Apple has this Steve Jobs cult, you know these followers who just love Steve Jobs. Um, but then there's this uh, final problem of, well, you know, Apple just simply has the brand name. You know, people recognize Apple and they know what they're all about. And you know that when you buy an Apple product, for the most part, it's exactly what you, uh, it's, it's exactly, you're getting what you're promised. You know, it's exactly what, you know what it's going to be like. You know the, the build, the quality. It's going to be a good experience for most people. Um, so uh, so what does Samsung do? So, you know, if you're, so Samsung made this decision to hire a marketer. Um, named Todd Pendleton, who uh, I had spent some time with, and I spent some time with his former team. They've all left Samsung now, but I spent many hours um, getting coffee with them and, and interviewing them, getting their stories. And uh, Todd Pendleton was a former Nike marketer, and you have to imagine that for a company like Samsung to hire somebody like this, who you know he led the Le the LeBron James deal with Nike, he led the um, Kobe Bryant deal with Nike. This is really unusual for a company like Samsung, and this signaled. Uh, that their top executives had actually, you know, realized that they have a serious marketing and brand problem. That, um, you know, that they they finally come to terms with this idea that, you know, we know now that you know Apple's just going to beat us, and if we don't tell a story, then uh, it doesn't matter what phone we put out. So Todd Pendleton and his team they got to work pretty quickly. This was in 2011, and these, this was the office 
um, that was essentially, I, I would call it the, the vanguard or like kind of the front lines in the Apple versus Samsung wars. Their job was to find a way to reverse the narrative, um, to reverse the narrative against Apple and to try to turn the claims of Steve Jobs on its head. So how do they do that? Um, so one of the big ideas that they drew on was uh, Coke versus Pepsi. Yeah, and, that's a good chapter. Yeah, I'm I remember still, reading that. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Yeah. So uh, Coke versus Pepsi, you know, it's one of it's one of the classic MBA case studies. I think every business student probably has to read some kind of Harvard business <laughs> study, um, you know, on, on this war from the 1970s and 1980s. It was back when Coke was the dominant drink, uh, and it was a drink that had basically branded, you know, the holiday of Christmas. It was associated with Santa Claus and, you know, the color red. And uh, it had been so successful in its branding um, and marketing campaigns over the years that it had, you know, essentially become associated with America itself. You know, Coke is America in, in the same way, you know, Apple is almost like, you know, branded in this, this super efficient way where it's like Apple is, you know, like kind of like the, the good guys, you know, the, the good guys of Silicon Valley. Um, so Pepsi came along and, you know, until this point, there were so many different cola drinks that would enter and exit the market really quickly, but nobody could ever really stand up against Coke. And Pepsi, uh, back in the day, back before Pepsi was big, it was kind of seen as um, the cool young person's drink, like you would see yeah. high schoolers drinking it, or like the you know college yeah. campuses, you'd see uh, students kind of hanging around having their Pepsi. They saw it as a bit of a, re a rebellious mm -hmm. cola drink back in the 60s. Um, but then... Uh, Pepsi got this idea, like they were still in the shadow of Coke, they still weren't that, you know, big, and, and their marketers got this idea, what if we just simply went head on with Coke, uh, and just basically, like, instead of trying to beat Coke, like, go, like, you don't go head on, you don't, you know, you don't play a game of chicken where two cars, cars are racing against each other, and then you crash, and, you know, die, that would be terrible, I mean, you could kill your own brand if you went up against a major giant like that, but, but what if we did something else? What if we just um, went head to head with Coke in a way that makes them go crazy with our advertising and then they simply lose their minds and do something really stupid that ruins their consumer loyalty and their market share and their sales and all this. Which um, is what they did, right? <laughs> and, yeah, and that's what they did. So they set up a special, um, a new, uh, it was called the, um, uh, the Pepsi challenge. And it was a series of commercials. They would invite people, you know, at shopping malls and, you know, beaches and all these places, just random passerbys. Uh, and they'd say, you know, you're going to do a blind taste test and we won't tell you, uh, which drink is which. And, you know, they would do the, so they would put on the blindfold, they would drink, uh, you know, like a, a Coke or a Pepsi, and then they would ask which one they like better. And the majority of them said Pepsi. Mm -hmm. And this was an enormously successful campaign because basically what it did is it elevated Pepsi to become the only name that was said in the same yes. breath as Coke. Yeah. Like, are you going to do you like Coke or do you like Pepsi? Before that, it wasn't like that at all. Yeah. Uh, so uh, this caused Coke to lose its mind. And Coke just, you know, they they started to question their own recipe. And the recipe was the sacrosanct thing of Coke. Like, everybody was loyal to that Coke recipe that's been a, a national secret for you know, like the past hundred years or something. And they decided to change, like they actually changed the recipe for a while. And they created a, a new drink and it was called New Coke. Yes. <laughs> uh, what they've done is that they had abandoned their, their own uh, loyalist, you know, consumers, the people who like the old Coke better. Um, so it was just this uproar and they lost their market share. And in the end, they had to go back to the old Coke. And even though Coke did recover in the end, 
that was the victory for Pepsi that it was now the two horse race. It was Coke versus Pepsi always. And it was never just Coke dominating everybody. Um, so, yeah, but I just want to point out something. Yeah. I mean, something you say for the audience is, you know, Pepsi went from being from running almost a guerrilla campaign to being seen as the accepted competitor to Coke. Yes, yes, exactly. They went from running a guerrilla campaign that was highly controversial yes. and very risky. You know, in hindsight, it's always easy to say, yeah, of course it would be successful. But at the time, it was a very risky guerrilla marketing campaign. Because uh, if you attack your competitor head on, you might just be giving them free advertising. You might actually look like you're just being petty and, you know, that, you know, you might look like a weakling, like you've got something to prove, you know, like you're like you're trying a little too hard to stand up to the big guy in the room. Um, but then there's also the other risk of, you know, what if you're filming these commercials uh, and, you know, then more people just choose Coke. Uh, you know, if that that would be a disaster. That like you would just get your butt kicked. You know, like yeah. that, that just looks so terrible if um, you set up this whole thing and then everybody just rejected you and said Coke is actually better. Um, that would that would be a business destroying ad campaign. So, but I, but I think they understood American culture well. Americans <laughs> like a comeback story. Yeah, they do, and I think that Americans, you know, especially when it comes to marketing campaigns, they like comeback stories and they like the small guy they yeah, like the underdog they love the small guy the underdog yeah the underdog they like the they like the guy who's standing up to the you know the powerful guy in the well, room that explains, that explains a, the appeal of silicon valley right yeah yeah exactly and that is the story of silicon valley if you i know today it's it's very fashionable yeah. to hate uh you know jeff bezos and all these guys but if you go back to you know 20 30 40 years ago silicon valley was a um you know, it, it was the rebellion culture. Yeah. It was the counterculture. It was, um, I mean, these were essentially hippies from the late 60s and 70s who had taken on to technology and thought that they could upend the system with their own technologies. They could upend IBM and they could get rid of, you know, Intel and Fairchild Semiconductor who were associated with the uh, military industrial complex of the Cold War. I mean, th these were the companies that these startups truly hated and people cheered them on because they were young rebels and they were... You know, they were almost like without a, rebels without a cause. They didn't really care if they went out of business. They were willing to take risks and, and you know, do whatever they could over and over and over again to get to that one big success that would change the way we use our technology. Yeah, but that's a good point. I, I think people need to, to remember that as they read the book and as they listen to the podcast. It's about understanding where, the, where society is, where the pulse is at the moment. I think Pepsi understood that at the time. But let, let's continue with the story of how Samsung marketing learned from this. Yes, yes. So you, actually what you just said, I think that was a very good point, Michael, about understanding where the pulse is. And uh, the Samsung marketers who were based out of Richardson, Texas, it's a little uh, suburb nearby Dallas, had been so they had been doing this market research and they had found this interesting trend that was developing. So um, the pulse was that people were getting kind of tired of Apple and Steve Jobs. Yeah. Um, you know, they were they were just getting. I mean, there were there was a huge segment of the market out there of potential consumers who maybe had been dabbling in smartphones, who you know took a liking to Android, which was run by Google and still is. Um, and, you know, who didn't really want to get an iPhone because they, to, to be frank, they just thought it was douchey. You know, they just thought it was like, you know, like, like there are all these iPhone maniacs out there who, you know, they think they're really cool and creative, but really all they're doing is just paying a lot of money for a smartphone that, you know, they don't really, they're paying too much. They don't really need to pay this much. 
and they're just paying to get branded. You know, it's like they're putting uh, an Apple tattoo on the back of their neck or something, and yeah. running around and saying like, "Look at me, I'm so yes. like cool and creative," and you know, I'm like, uh, I, I run a really hip coffee shop, and you know, like I, I'm just like so much cooler than all of you because I, I've got the latest Apple phone, and the, you know, these are the guys who would stand out in line at the Apple stores you know, for like nine hours the previous night for the next big device that's being released. Uh, you know, like, I, but I remember those days. I think that that doesn't exist anymore, but I remember even I was kind of feeling that way. Yeah. You know, so, I, I, so I'm, I'm a millennial. I'm from the millennial generation. And I just remember when the first iPhone came out thinking like, okay, cool. Yeah. See, so Apple's making a comeback, but then three, four years in, it was just like, okay, you know, like enough Apple now. Can we like, please, you know, do something new? Um, in this, you know, just something new out there. It doesn't have to be a phone, but just no more Steve Jobs, please. No more Tim Cook. So, um, yeah, so uh, so the Samsung executives, led by Todd Pendleton, saw this uh, opening. They saw that the pulse was changing, and they saw that there was this tribe of uh, Android users. And these were people who would go on web forums and talk about their Android phones and, and how they can tinker with Android. They also saw that Android was much more customizable than the... Uh, than the iPhone, than the iOS. It was it was much more versatile. You could use it. I mean, if you're uh, in a creative field, um, you know, Android could easily be way more, back then, way more useful yeah. than an iPhone, which is more like a mass-produced device. And so they decided, you know, the all these Android people, they were basically a tribe, but they were looking for a leader. They didn't really have anybody who had stood up yet and said, you know, we're we're, we're team Android and we're against Apple. We don't I, like I just want to stop you for a second, Jeff. This is very interesting. So what you're saying is, and I want to make sure the audience understands this, okay? Yes. Because, I've, I mean, I picked it up from the book, but you're articulating it very well. Because when people hear, think of Android, they think of it as a unified operating system. But what you're saying is that there's a lot of Android players, but there's no one, well, until Samsung came along, there was no one, there was no one dominant Android player. Yes, yes. And I guess... The equivalent would be, so back in the days when Windows was becoming the dominant operating system, I mean, I remember the days when I was a kid in the 90s, Windows 95 came out, and it was just a gold rush to get the new operating yes. system. And of course, yeah, so there's a great OS, great software, but who uh, who leads the hardware? Yes. And that be, for a while, that became IBM. IBM was the biggest PC maker. And yeah, it was, you know, pads, I remember those things. Yeah, yeah. So it was IBM and Microsoft versus Apple for a long time. Yeah. And this is essentially a similar thing happening in the smartphone world. So there's Apple. Um, you know, there's this great Android software. And it was, you know, I, I used Android phones for a long time, too. And I also used iPhones. And I came to like the Android software better because it was just so much more customizable. And I, I could use it for, so. you know, I could, back, back in the day, I, I mean, I could record with it easily. You know, it was hard to... Um, record with iPhones. I use that for my work a lot. And um, you know, I, I was just thinking, like, come on, th like this whole iPhone thing, it has to be overrated. I mean, yeah, they are good phones, but like, I, I, I'm just really skeptical that the iPhone is the only one out there that you know that we have to use in the year 2012. Um, <laughs> the only phone that you know makes a difference in the world. So um, yeah, so so it was, uh, you know, there was this Android software. And, you know, it was great software, but there wasn't really a hardware maker or an actual, you know, product in yeah. front of you that would be the Android phone. You know, Google wasn't really making phones that much. I don't I don't remember when they made their first phone, but, I mean, it was like you could choose an LG, mm -hmm. you could choose a Motorola, which was owned by Google for a little while. 
Um, you can choose the uh, BlackBerry phone. Uh, you can choose the HTC. Yes. You know, these are all names that I, you know, I think that they've pretty much been forgotten today. I think that yeah. you know, back then you had to choose from this wide catalog of hardware makers, but they were all making kind of junky hardware that nobody really cared about. And the idea of the Samsung executives in Texas was, well, you know, why don't we just get rid of all these guys, just kind of wipe them clean and turn this into a two-horse race. And there are two camps, you know, either you're the Samsung guy with your Android phone, yeah. usually, or you're the Apple guy with your iPhone. And we're going to turn this into a Coke versus Pepsi war for the smart world, for, for the smartphone world. So basically, they made it easy for consumers. Rather than trying to debate which phone is the best fit for Android, they gave consumers less choice. Yes, they gave consumers less choice, and that's the irony of it. They, yeah. <laughs> put a Samsung, <laughs> they put a Samsung phone in front of them, and they said, this has, in most cases, it has better hardware you know, than the latest Apple. Um, I mean, they, they never said Apple directly, but they would say our competitor. They would say, uh, our competitor, you know, like they, they don't have 4G yet. They're still on 3G. This is a 4G phone. It's a lot faster. Uh, we have a better display. Here's our display technology. We have a uh, you know better processor that we made, um, and then you know they would go to the operating system and say this is just a much more customizable phone that you can use uh, for just about anything. I mean we just we have more features. We have more um, you know more apps. It's a it's a freer ecosystem. More people are allowed to upload apps. Um, it's you know it's something that like if you if you don't want to buy the latest iPhone, just take a look at Samsung. And so the way they did this. Um, it was a very clever marketing campaign. So it was called The Next Big Thing Is Here. And it was filmed, um, there was an ad agency called 72 and Sunny that was hired to work on this. They're really um, probably one of the best ad agencies in the business uh, a couple of years ago. I mean, for a while, they were just on fire. And, and just so, do you know if the guy from Nike who came over to run marketing, is he, is he the one who brought in this ad agency? Yeah, he did. He, he brought in 72 and Sunny. Uh, he also brought in a lot of his NBA contacts, old Nike contacts. He was able to bring in, um, you know, LeBron and these guys to do commercials. And, you know, he was able to bring in uh, Jay-Z. I mean, he was really big on the, you know, obviously coming from Nike, big on the celebrity deals, celebrity endorsements, and trying to get celebrities to really like, you know, their their smart, their Samsung phones instead of just paying them a bunch of money to use it. Um, so the next big thing campaign um, it was a commercial ad campaign. It aired on social media. It was on the you know NBA Finals, yes. uh, and it was um, it was it won a lot of awards. Uh, I, I don't remember which awards right now, but it was one of the classic marketing campaigns of the era. And what happened was that uh, it, it would show, you know, it would open with uh, an Apple store, presumably an Apple store, and it would show you know all these these kind of millennials, like kind of like twenties and thirties, you know, hipster kids uh, standing around in this giant line that goes out the door and around the corner. And, you know, it's like, you know, they're saying like it's 16 hours to go until the next big I thing is released. Yeah. And I can't wait for this. I'm so hyped. I'm so amped. And, you know, all right, 15 more hours, 14 more hours. And they're just standing around, you know, talking about yeah. mindless things. And, you know, one of them would say like, you know, the headphone jack is going to go on the mm -hmm. bottom and you're just like, okay, so, and, uh, and then one of them says, you know, something like, I heard the adapter is all digital. And then he's like, what does that even mean? I don't even know. Um, so there's, I mean, they're just trolling and making fun of these hardcore Apple geeks, yes. Steve Jobs geeks. And then it, it, it's a little bit of what, like what Apple did to Microsoft in those cam ad campaigns a few years ago. 
yeah, yeah. Actually, it was. There was a similar campaign um, in the early 2000s. It was, I think it was called I'm a Mac on a PC. Yes, I remember that. Very effective. It was very effective. And I remember there was a time back then when, uh, you know, the Mac was gaining momentum. And with that ad campaign, they were able to reverse it. And, and uh, I mean, it, it, it was very effective just trolling, trolling their rival and just making the rival look like they're not really that cool. They're not yeah. as you know, awesome as they think they are, well, right? I mean, and, and they showed the PC guy as, like, this kind of stodgy, you know, like, kind of stuffy... I'd have to go back and look at it, but it was it was very funny. Well, what they did is they turned technical superiority into almost a handicap. If, yeah. If you talk about how technically superior, you're almost a geek, and it's a bad thing. Yes. And they did yeah. it very well. I mean, you don't know they're doing it, but they're making you dislike someone, even though... They're actually good at something. Yeah, yeah. And I guess this campaign with Samsung, that's a good way of putting it. I think that it was almost, yeah, it was almost, a, it was a very similar strategy. Um, I mean, it was a very similar way of doing things because it was just so, you know, it was almost like these Apple geeks were, you know, they were talking about technical advances in the iPhone, but uh, a lot of times they didn't know what they were talking about or it was just not significant. I mean, it was a minor upgrade. Well, uh, you know, as Clayton Christensen says in um, The Innovator's Dilemma, uh-huh. at a certain time you overshoot the needs of the market. So every new iteration of a technology means nothing to the market. Yes, yes. And that that is, an, yeah, you're right, The Innovator's Dilemma. That was one of the big issues in there. I remember that, such a classic book. Um, and actually that book, when I was writing this book, yeah. I went back a bit and I, I was reading and rehashing you know, that old book just because it was such a... Um, yeah, so influential on, on this whole technology world we live in. But that is the, the, one of the dilemmas, right? That um, there's a tendency to uh, to overestimate what the market wants. You know, that yes. I think that if you're in technology and you're an innovator and you want to get out the next big thing, you, you've always got to be asking yourself, well, you know, does the average guy who uses a smartphone, does he really care um, that this has, you know, a, a nine uh, ampermeter yes. battery life versus an eight? And, you know, that's, it's easy to get into that, you know, that mindset when you're, you know, when you're there at the table with all the creative, you know, designers and engineers around the table, there's always going to be a tendency to overshoot or to overdo the capabilities to show your stuff, to show how cool you are, how awesome you are. Um, But, you know, sometimes people just want a phone that works. And actually, I just got off the, uh, before I was talking to you, um, I actually had a really interesting call with an advertising executive who works with a lot of these smartphone firms. And it's one of the big firms um, up in the Pacific Northwest. And he was telling me about how they're having this problem now uh, with 5G that, um, you know, there was a bit, there was a lot of hype around 5G and people were saying, like, we got to get out the next 5G phones. We have to impress, you know, the consumers with this new capability. They can download a movie in a second or, you know, they, all these, all these crazy things. And, and, uh, you know, like, yeah, I, I'm, so me as I, I use my smartphone a lot, and I, I just remember hearing about the first 5G phones, and then just kind of wondering, like, well, I don't need to download a movie in a second. I can stream, you know, I can stream on on Spotify, and the sound quality. I'm also a sound nerd. I'm a musician, and you know, even then, the sound quality is fine. I, I don't really need a 5G that's going to be able to send me higher quality audio on my phone. I, I would rather turn to a you know a real stereo for something like that, yeah. um, and. Uh, I think that, you know, this is a problem that's coming up over and over again, especially in strategy and marketing right now, um, because we're on the verge of all these different, um, you know, these, these different 
uh, breakthroughs in artificial intelligence and 5G and uh, facial recognition, um, voice recognition, uh, you know, biotechnology even. I mean, there, there's so much that I, I, we're just on the verge. It's almost like a pregnant woman about to <laughs> pop baby out. Uh, and uh, it's going to come in this decade. But, I mean, I, like I, the, the big question is, you know, what... Uh, what does it I mean for us? Yeah, what, what is, what's the significance? What, what is the significance? Um, I'm sure AI will certainly have a lot of significance. I think that'll be an easy sell for a lot of people yeah. once they see how convenient it makes their life. Um, but, you know, something like 5G or something like the, the latest non-memory semiconductor, which is going to get big soon, yes. uh, the average person just, you know, like my phone works fine. And, you know, my friend, he likes his phone and, you know, my, my landlord seems to like his iPhone. And, you know, why buy a new phone for $1,000 or more when the old ones are still have matured so well? They just work great. Yeah. Exactly, but let's go back to the marketing story. Oh, yes, yes. Sorry to diverge there. No, no, it's so. all interesting. It's all interesting. Yeah, okay, so this marketing campaign at Samsung was extremely controversial mm -hmm. internally after the first commercials aired. So the problem, and this is what the executives started to realize as they got further into this campaign, the problem was that uh, Samsung was not just competing with Apple, but it was also a supplier to Apple. Yes. Uh, and Samsung executives in the semiconductor field or the display business unit would call up the executives in the smartphone unit and the marketing unit and just yell at them and scream and say, what are you doing? Like, you're attacking our partner head on. Uh, you know, you're making a phone, but remember that we're actually making the displays for the latest yes. iPhone. So and, you know, we've made... right? <laughs> Sorry, what was that? There's a competition because you have different... There's almost a conflict of interest. Huge conflicts of interest there, and this is one of the big dilemmas that arises from Samsung's business model. And that that business model is to compete with your partners, to supply them parts, but then to build products that can beat them out at the same time. Um, it's a smart model because it makes you indispensable. I mean, you you really do have a powerful position in the industry with this model if you can make a lot of components. But then the downside is, well, you know, you can't really attack your partners head on. You, Bingo, you, yes. you're going to have a trouble. Yeah, you're going to have a lot of trouble competing. You can't really set set up a good marketing strategy that will position Samsung as the best maker of a phone or a TV because you don't want to anger Sony or you don't want to anger Apple or, or some other big company. Uh, that yeah. that there, there's, a, there's another important insight that you're bringing out here is that a lot of times when you look at you know marketing decisions or strategy decisions, we don't think about our internal conflicts of interest drive that. We always think it's about what does the consumer want, but it, in this case, we can see a clear example where a conflict of interest is driving a marketing decision. Yes, yes, and that is one of the big lessons, I think, from uh, Samsung, and it's a lesson that you'll find in any major multinational corporation, I think anywhere in the world, New York, Silicon Valley, the big companies, so you know, we tend to think of, when we think of marketing and strategy, I think that there's a bias to look at Apple or Facebook, but yes. these are, you know, these are extremely, you know, relatively specialized organizations that work in very specific spheres. Um, you know, let's say if you were to look at GE or IBM or, you know, any old uh, tech titan from the past century that's yeah. not like the Silicon Valley giant, these are still massive companies, um, but I think they're overlooked in a lot of marketing because they all, they're just like Samsung. They supply their competitors and, you know, uh, Honeywell, which is a giant from the 1950s and 60s, still massive. I mean, they'll, they'll probably be supplying some kind of, um, you know, hardware semiconductor component 
uh, to the refrigerators made by its uh, competitors. But yes. then Honeywell also makes refrigerators, so they can't really release a marketing campaign that goes at their competitors' refrigerators. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's just something to keep in mind. And I think that um, a lot of people don't realize this until after they're deep into the campaign, uh, what conflicts of interest they yes. actually do have. And, you know, sometimes they have to pull back. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. Imagine going out and telling your marketing team, you've done a wonderful job. You know, everyone's talking about Samsung. Everyone's happy with the campaign. We're seeing an increase in sales, but we've got to pull back because you're upsetting the division that's selling to Apple. Yes, and I mean, I can't even imagine just how these marketers felt. I, I talked to them, and they told me how they felt, but just I, I couldn't imagine just the amount of frustration and the anger and the resentment that was building up in there because um, they had done such an incredible job with this marketing campaign. It was a Super Bowl campaign. Um, it was getting a ton of attention in the media. I mean, it was just it was on social media. It had turned Samsung into the only name mentioned in the same breath as Apple. It was... You know, are you going to get an iPhone? You're going to get a Samsung, one or the other. Yes. Nobody ever asks you if you're going to get an LG, and that's what these marketers led by Todd Pendleton had achieved. Um, and the height of their success, actually, which uh, you had mentioned earlier, was the Oscar selfie. Yeah, uh, they wanted to get these. Unbelievable. These... Yeah, yeah. I didn't well, even well, know that it had been orchestrated. I just thought she had done it until I read the book. I didn't know it was all planned with so much work. Yeah, yeah, but that was the brilliance of it. I mean, yeah. it, it was um, it was a very brief shot, but you know that one shot got it, it was the most retweeted shot in in all of Twitter's history, and it still is the most retweeted uh, tweet ever. So um, yeah, I, I, so that that shot, and just to remind our listeners, so that was in 2014 at the yeah. Oscars when Ellen DeGeneres she uh, she had her Galaxy Note, I think it was a Galaxy Note yeah. three. Um, and she wanted to do this last minute selfie. It was written, it was partially written into the script, yeah. but it was kind of left out to just to make it kind of improvise and make yeah. it, you know, they didn't want this to be too planned and overdone like a regular marketing stunt. Um, but they wanted it to be natural and they wanted it to have flow. So Ellen DeGeneres got this idea that she wanted to shoot the a selfie and try to break Twitter. She thought we could make history yeah. uh, and see how many retweets we can get on this thing. So uh, during the show, she approached uh, Meryl Streep and then Brad Pitt and a few others and managed to get them in the audience all around to, to stand up, to get all around into this one you know selfie yeah. shot that she took and then she put it up. And that was a, it was a Samsung stunt. So Samsung marketers were present at the Oscar, um, the rehearsals, and they had actually seen Ellen using her iPhone. She was an iPhone user. Uh, and you know since they had this sponsorship, they decided that that they were going to try to give her a Galaxy Note and see how she liked it. Ironically, they had to teach her how to use it because she wasn't a Samsung <laughs> user. Uh, and, uh, but, but they wanted people to notice the yeah. fact that she was using a Samsung, um, and they thought that that would be, you know, it would be a good, it would be a good stunt. Like, it would kind of put, put Samsung into that realm with Apple where they're able to get, you know, celebrities just to use their phone without having to, you know, constantly badger them about, you know, like, like with these celebrity deals and stuff. Um, yeah, so... But the uh, thing is that nobody knew that was a stunt because I went back and read the clippings from that selfie, but no one ever, no reporter realized that was a marketing stunt at the time. Yeah, I, I think that very few people realized. So there, there were some people. I, I was following Twitter when this yeah. happened because I was researching the book, and there were some people who pointed out that when she went backstage, suddenly she was tweeting from her iPhone because it said, you know, tweet, tweeted from iPhone yeah. on the tweet. Uh, and then that's how that's how some people noticed. They said, "Okay, this must have been 
some kind of stunt. Because why, why else should, would you pull out a Samsung Note? You know, why, why would you pull that out and then just go back to an iPhone backstage? Well, um, I, I think Ellen would have told us she, she has one phone for her personal life and one for her business life. Yeah, yeah. I think she might have said that at some point. But uh, it, it, So it didn't really come out until later. So Todd Pendleton did... Um, later on talk more about how that was, uh, it was partially staged, um, but how, you know, I, I think that the marketers, what they, so the way they described their philosophy to me was that these kinds of things are like a, a lightning strike that, you know, you can never predict when or where it'll happen, but you can set up the circumstances to try to take advantage of when it will happen. And when that lightning does strike, you know, you'll be ringing in the bonanza. And that's, it's risky marketing because, you know, not everybody can pull this off because it takes a lot of time Yes. Uh, a lot of money, uh, tons of resources into something that might not actually happen. I mean, Samsung, I think it had a $20 million estimated sponsorship for, for five years or something with uh, the Oscars. Wow. That may um, be the world's most expensive selfie. Yeah, it's the world's most expensive selfie. And, you know, it, it worked for them. It's, you know, it's something that, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it's an example of the campaign and how they were trying to transform themselves into you know, more of a cultural company, like more like a Nike with the just do it. Like they're trying to transform themselves into a company that's not just making hardware, but they're actually a part of these cultural moments and they're a part of American, you know, society. They they want you to have an emotional response to Samsung. Sorry, what was that? They want you to have an emotional response to Samsung. Yes, yes. And that's exactly where the genius of this particular campaign was. It was, um, it really was, building the emotional connection to the user. And I think that that's, that really is the, one of the hardest parts of marketing or strategy because, um, you know, in the strategy world, I think that um, people tend to be dominated these days by data and, you know, analyzing the graph, where is this market likely going to go? Is there a risk? Is there a competitor that's going to come in who we can't see right now? Um, but it's easy to get the emotional side and the creative side lost in all that debate. Um, I was actually just reading the book by Bob Iger, the former yeah. CEO of Disney, and he actually talks a bit about that too. How how they at Disney when he first arrived, he had to disband the um, the main corporate strategy office. Yeah. It was a really old, famous office at Disney that that micromanaged all these decisions mm-hmm. across this massive company that does a lot, you know, does a lot like kind of like Samsung. Yeah. Uh, he found that it was just impeding just way too much on the emotional appeal and the creative appeal. And, and this office was essentially turning Disney, you know, into this, this, you know, faceless corporation. That's yes. not really likable that, you know, the, the days of Mickey Mouse and yeah. childhood charm had been lost because this, this office was just so meddlesome and the creative decisions of the actual, you know, studio directors. Um, And I I think that, you know, Samsung and a lot of companies have had very similar problems where, you know, if you're in engineering, if you're in technology, how do you make that leap from, you know, just making a a set of parts that come together into a phone, turning it into something that is, you know, an experience in itself, you know, that you pick up your phone and you're transported to a world, you know, and that world can be a website somewhere or a video, or you're transported to maybe a virtual reality game or, you know, like you're, you, it's not just about, it's, it's the whole is more than the sum of its parts. That's the lesson here, I think. Yes. I know. I think, you know, what, you, what you're saying is very good because if you look at the evolution of Samsung, they go through a level, an evolution pattern all companies go through. At the beginning, they don't have a strong enough brand, so they have to, you know, white label their products. 
At a certain point, they realize that they have to control their destinies, so they start to brand themselves. And because they don't have a big brand name, they have to compete at the low end of the market. But you can't compete there forever. So at some point, you've got to get into America's consciousness. And that's where they are now. Yes, and it's yes. all because of this marketing campaign, because no one talks about, I mean, we all talk about the technology, but no one's going to talk about the technology if the marketing campaign didn't make us want to even think about Samsung. Yes, that's exactly right. I think you just summed it up exactly how it's happened. It's, um, you know, it's not just about putting the product in front of the consumer, but it's, it's about getting into their imagination. Uh, and, you know, if you look at every, every major successful company in maybe, I don't know if this is just America, but maybe just, you know, around the world, when it comes to being a success, you really have to make people imagine things. You have to spark the imagination. You have to spark you know, the creativity or the curiosity or, you know, kind of the sense of excitement. Like if I get this new smartphone, uh, you know, what's, what is it going to bring for me? Like in a, in a positive way, like, is it, this is, it's, it's exciting. Like it's sitting here, it's in the wrapper, I'm opening it up and I just can't wait to turn this on and just see what this is all about. Cause I feel like I'm looking at, you know, a minor work of art here. Like this could, you know, maybe in a hundred years, this will be in a museum somewhere. That's how well designed it is. And, uh, that's that all really all that is. That is imagination. You know, that's um, that's the softer side of the, the of the brain, the softer side of the business. Um, and you know, I think that that's exactly the problem that a lot of companies face when they're trying to break into this world is they have to they have no brand name, so they have to market themselves at a much uh, dis, a much more discounted rate than you know their biggest competitors. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, you know, just so even here in this Samsung case, so Todd Pendleton, the CMO. Uh, on the first day when he walked in, he he put a a Nike shoe on his desk, and then he put a Reebok shoe on his desk. And this is what he told me. It it actually wasn't in the book. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, but he he asked his staffers, okay, so why does one shoe you know go for two to three times the price at your local shoe shop, whereas the other shoe is sold in the discount bargain, yeah. you know, the bargain basement, the the uh, the bargain boxes where you just look through old shoes and get your cheap one at the local Walmart. Like, what is the difference here? And the answer that they converged on was that Nike had had simply become this master of crafting these cultural moments of you know getting into the imaginations and the psyches, yeah. kind of like the it almost like you know the feeling when you go see a, a really good movie, maybe like an Oscar nominated film, and it's starting and you're thinking like this is going to be really good. They got rave reviews. It's, it's almost like when you open a Nike box, you know, with these new $200 shoes, you're looking at them and, you know, I'm a tennis player and I'll, you know, I'll look at them and I'll be like, I can't wait to put these on. Cause like, it's just going to bring my game up so much and it's going to feel like I'm walking on air. Um, and you know, it's that imagination that you know, they've done a good job sparking. It's a halo effect. They've spent yeah. so much time cultivating it and now they use that as their biggest competitive advantage. Yeah. That is the advantage. It's that halo, that feeling that. You know that you're really holding something special in your hands, um, and it's not an easy thing to do. I mean, it is. A lot of companies have tried and failed, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, if if you try and fail this, it, you know, if you're a company like Samsung, and, and just to give you an idea, so Samsung spent about the equivalent of the entire economy of Iceland mm-hmm. on marketing. Uh, that's a lot of money to that's be. A lot of money. Yeah, to be able to to be able to craft this kind of cultural you know, uh, marketing, this imaginative style. I mean, if you're a big company and you spend that money and it fails and you can't do it, that, that is an enormous loss on your budget. I mean, that's something that it, it, it's not just about having a lot of money, but 
it really has to be executed with the right people and the right timing and kind of feeling the pulse of yeah. the society around you and what people are thinking, how they're feeling. I mean, there, there's just so much precision and so much planning and work that goes into making these campaigns a success that, you know, I, I think that there's also a tendency to focus on the successes, but then, you know, uh, there's a tendency to kind of ignore the failures as if, you know, everybody who does this is, you know, somehow successful just because they have the right thinking behind them. I mean, it, it is a lot more than that. Yeah, I think that's a good point because there have been many examples of mobile phone companies absolutely failing with marketing campaigns. I mean, we've seen how many have risen and disappeared. How many have tried to break into the American market, you know, algae and so on. But nobody has really become the de facto standard bearer for being the competitor to Apple. Yeah, nobody has really become the major standard bearer. I think that, you know, Samsung has probably come the closest. Yeah. Um, Samsung is still seen as the number two dog, you know, the number two that's kind of like, if you're not getting an iPhone, then you're probably getting a Samsung. But, you know, the reverse is not always true. And um, I think that Samsung has made enormous progress, but because of their own internal politics and, you know, there there were some very nasty internal... Um, fights going on that that are all detailed in the book and it ended up that um, Todd Pendleton and his team um, left a lot of them were just exhausted and tired out because they were being punished and blamed for the success of this campaign I mean a lot of the people in the Korean headquarters um, were quite frankly jealous you know they they were they, they were angry that you know a small office could could outdo them and could kind of show off and, and do a better job than the headquarters, which is the all-powerful entity yes. at Samsung. So, you know, another question that I think, uh, you know, any listener that were to be, you know, trying to to do this kind of thing would have to ask is, you know, is my organization set up to succeed at this? A lot of organizations yes. just have internal structures that don't really work well with, um, you know, this kind of cultural branding. Uh, if you look at Apple, one of the reasons why Apple has been so good at this is because they're essentially, at least how I see them, is that they're essentially a design company. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're a design company before anything else. And the designers, you know, even Steve Jobs, Johnny Ive, I mean, at the very top, they would be just micromanaging every pixel on the product that they're putting out. I mean, they, they really demanded complete perfection and they demanded this consistency across all these different products. So, you know, Apple is able to create something that really has that that artwork like feel to it whereas you know company like Samsung or any other big IBM type you know big technology giant they would have a lot of trouble with that because there are so many different offices making so many things and you know like we said before if one office is if the marketer does something wrong and loses a uh, a contract for the semiconductor office because their competitor is is really angry about that, um, then you know that's a problem, and maybe the organization just isn't really built to sustain this kind of campaign. Yeah, that's a good point you make because if you look at Samsung as an example, but you see this in many companies, right? If something is very successful, people get jealous because they're not getting the credit, it's not going to affect their bonuses, and it's not part of their empire. They are willing to kill it. Even though in the long term, everyone's going to suffer, but they are still willing to kill something that's very beneficial. And, you know, this this is why I wanted to bring up the story about marketing, because we, we can see how organizational politics, you know, we always know it's there, but we don't see the impact. But the story about marketing makes it very clear. It's not enough to be successful. It's whether you have an organization that can sustain the success. Yes, yes, exactly. That's exactly it. And... I think that when I was writing the book, that was really what came through for me too. When I was 
thinking about, you know, how to structure this and how to tell the story, I kept seeing this problem at Samsung over and over again. Yeah. And it, it wasn't only in marketing, but it happens in a lot of different offices. And it's this problem of competing uh, egos and, you know, competing offices. And an organization this big is going to have a lot of rivalries, internal resentments going on, you know, a lot of people competing for the yes. attention of their CEO. And yeah, if, um, if one office is unusually successful, then, you know, a few other offices might team up and try to whack them back in place, you know, get back into the bureaucracy and be one of us again. And that's essentially yes, what happened at Samsung. Good. They even had, had a campaign for a while um, called One Samsung. It was an internal yeah. PR campaign and they were trying to unify the company and try to kind of, you know, try to like trying to kind of clear out some of these errant, you know, marketing programs yes. and, and make the make the brand one again, one under a single headquarters. Yeah, but I mean, you can see that in the way you, you know, when you start the book, you talk about the problems of the battery and, and the problem with the battery to me is a mirror image of the problems of the marketing campaign, because in the marketing campaign, you had one, you had the head office being unhappy with the success of the Texas office for marketing. But in, with the problem with the battery, you had the rest of the company trying not to get involved with the problems of the batteries because they thought it wasn't their problem. Yes, yes. And so just to remind listeners, so this was from 2016 and 17 when Samsung released uh, a new phone called the Galaxy Note 7. And I'm sure many people remem will remember yes. that these phones were catching fire and they were... You cannot forget it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was, well, there was an airplane that was grounded, a Southwest Airlines uh, flight, and it was, it was about to take off, but then a phone caught fire and uh, it had to be grounded. But then um, not only that, so Samsung recalled these phones in September 2016 and then put out new replacement devices that turned out to be also dangerous with the same uh, problems with its batteries that they were they were combusting and they were you know dangerous and there was one man whose car was told he was luckily not in the car but it caught fire when it was on his dashboard and it's, the fire spread to the um, to the the uh, um, what, uh, what's it called again the um, the uh, what's the really combustible part of a car again it's the uh, uh, tank the gas tank it, yeah, uh, there's a gas tank, but uh, well, anyway, it's, but it spread to some other part that I, I forgot what it was. That's really highly combustible, and it just it basically blew up his car. It just it turned it into this twisted hunk of metal and yeah. steel. It looked, it looked like something I don't know if you remember the movie like Terminator Two yeah. or something, but it looked like that world you know where yes. all those cars and robots are all destroyed and stuff. Um, and you know this is what this was happening, and Samsung was uh, quiet about the matter. I mean, they they, they said that they were. Um, unable to confirm that you know this was a problem for a long time um, because they couldn't confirm that the phones were actually replacement devices. So yes. they were uh, a public bad, bad response. Yeah. I mean, a bad response. Very, very, very right. response. And this is you know going back to what you were just saying. This um, this was one of the biggest PR disasters in recent business history, I would say. Um, and a lot of the disaster came from the fact that there were competing offices who wanted to push the blame on others. Um, so uh, it looked like this was a problem with the battery. And in the end, Samsung concluded that it was actually a problem with the battery itself. Um, but then, you know, there, there was this whole host of issues where, uh, you know, the phone people didn't really want to take the blame for it. The battery people didn't want to take the blame. Um, it, it, the organization was frozen for a while. I mean, it couldn't really come out with a coherent response because no, everybody was, was pushing the buck to somebody else and saying internally, like, you know, oh, it must be, you know, your batteries suck. 
you know, it's, yeah. it's your back. That's a problem. And then, of course, the public relations people who are out there at the forefront, and, you know, they have to be assuring the public that they're doing something. They, they have really nothing to say because there's like an internal lockdown in the organization and they're just, they're hunkered down. They don't want to say anything. They don't want to, you know, they don't want to admit uh, anything that would get them in trouble. They don't want to lose their jobs. So don't, don't want to lose their bonuses. So really, it was, it was a really strange situation where these phones were blowing up, but then Samsung was essentially saying like, well, I guess it's not our problem. You know, this is all your problem. And they just kind of push it on society at large and say, we make good phones, but you know, we're doubtful that you're telling the truth. We tell the truth and everybody else lies. That was sort of the message they were yeah, sending out. I remember reading in, uh, <laughs> the book, one of the emails that the customer service department sent to someone. Yeah. And it was a very confusing email about they don't know what they can say because they don't know what phone he has. And until they know what phone he has, they cannot actually say anything. It was yes. the most confusing customer email response I've ever seen. It was so funny. Yes, <laughs> yes. I, I got a kick out of that too. That was pretty, uh, pretty hilarious. And but that is the um, that's one of the big risks of having this, you know, this corporate organizational structure with so many offices. Um, these offices are, you know, they're they're not always cooperative. They're competing yes. with each other for the, you know, the bonus or the raise, or they're competing for to get promoted to the next CEO. Uh, and, you know, when disaster strikes, it's just like, well, push it on the other guy. Like, I'm not taking responsibility for this. So, you know, I think that in any uh, public relations campaign or crisis communications, it's very similar to the issues with marketing that we discuss. And, you know, the, the question is, like, do I have an organization, you know, that can that can take the shock or take the blow or, or you know, kind of absorb what's happening around us and, and actually collaborate to to, you know, to give an answer to the public or to market something to the public. Yeah, and when I was reading the book, one of the things you do very well is, is you show the central tension that faces Samsung. On the one hand, they like to be very hierarchical where everything comes from the top, but all the good things they need to be successful cannot come from the top. They've got to bring it in and create these offshoots in Texas and so on. But when those parts become too successful, they get the wrong kind of attention. And I was thinking to myself, this is almost... You're almost articulating Samsung's biggest weakness if I was a competitor trying to take on Samsung. I would take them on in the parts where, they're, it's, where it's outside central control because they struggle to mobilize an effective response. Yes, yes. And this is, I think this also goes back to the organizational culture and the structure that we were talking about. The problem with Samsung and a lot of big companies is that they're really uh, headquarters-centric. Mm -hmm. And when there's, you know, there's even a Korean saying, and it's, um, it's that a, uh, a nail that sticks out gets hammered in. Yeah. Um, and you know, this is how, you know, I think that most Korean businessmen and business workers think of business. Uh, they don't think in terms of, you know, I'm going to go out and do the very best thing I can and stand out. What they, what they tend to think in these corporations is I'm just, I'm going to, stay hidden in the system because standing out is just, you know, it's going to, it's, it's going to attract way too much attention to me. And there are going to be so many people vying to take me down a notch and put themselves above me. So, you know, a place like Samsung, it is one of the biggest dilemmas facing big businesses that, you know, the, the stars don't always have room to be stars. You know, they, they are going to run up into these rivalries. They're going to run up into this, you know this this anger and resentment from other people who've working who've been working there all their lives, and this is the main weakness, as you say, that Samsung has. And internally, they know about it, and they've been trying to reform it 
without a whole lot of luck. Yeah. The problem is that um, you know Samsung is a traditional company with uh, these these old promises of lifelong employment and you know family as company, and we're all in this together. Um, the problem is that the world has changed so much, and this model doesn't really work yes. well in our modern economy. So then, but then the problem is that so Samsung and not just Samsung, but many companies bring in um, you know they'll bring in somebody from uh, HP or you know or Compaq or IBM or Apple or any other you know big company, make them a chief marketing officer, make them a vice president for software. Um, and every time they do that, that's a threat to the lifelong employees, the Samsung men, as they're called, because that means that, you know, they're, they're ex the promotion that they've been expecting since they were 25 years old and joined um, is being cut off. Like, they're no longer going to be climbing through the ranks as the company promised them with this lifetime employment yes. offer. You know, that every outsider changes the culture, and whenever the culture changes, well, that's a threat to my job, because, you know, I mean, look at me. I've been here my whole life, and who are these outsiders to come in and tell me how to do my job? Like yeah. that's, that's correct to my own ascension in this organization. Yeah. Who are these Americans to tell me how to market phones? Yeah. Who are these Americans? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the book ends off with what I think is almost, um, it alludes to something, but it, it doesn't, maybe it's a follow-up book. I don't know, but Samsung is no longer the insurgent. They are now facing insurgents from China. Yes. Everything yes. that they've done to Apple is going to be done to them. Yes, yes, and you're right. And actually, I did want to write more about that, but I was I was butting up against the uh, limit. We had, we had a page limit, and I couldn't go too far over it. But um, that is the latest saga in this world of technology, especially in hardware manufacturer manufacturing and hardware design. The latest saga is. Um, you know, we've spent the past 20, 30 years fighting Apple and Sony or, you know, fighting yeah. the, whoever. And now, like the model that we've used, it's, it's basically being copied and imitated. And now the Chinese are using it against us. And this applies to so many companies um, around the world. So, you know, we've never really seen anything like China before. I mean, I, you know, I've done a lot of studies of uh, the history of Japan and Korea, Germany, uh, you know, these industrial success stories. But China, first of all, has strength, strength in numbers. Unlike these other places, um, China is no longer just an export market. They have their own consumer it's a domestic base. Market. They, they, can, they, can, they have enough of a market to keep themselves going. Yes, yes. And not only that, but unlike previous you know, business success stories, they're, they're starting with um, massive amounts of private data on all their citizens, uh, you know, a technology, a software ecosystem that already works in tandem with each other. Yeah. That's separate from Google, and because Google, you know, exited a long time ago, yes. um, they they have their own internal system that already works. So, you know, they they don't have to necessarily like export their way out of poverty anymore. They they don't need to rely on Americans yes. or Europeans to buy their products. Um, so, you know, they can take a lot of shocks and blows. They're they're not that vulnerable and. Basically, that all that what that means is that we're up against a behemoth. You know that uh, companies like Samsung, you know, I think that they're very vulnerable to just getting completely squashed. And the reason for this is because of hardware manufacturing and the way it works. Yes. So hardware manufacturing, you know, we live in this age of the software ecosystem, and I think that Americans in particular forget what it's like to actually be making hardware, which you know is one of the original business models. Um, you can make any hardware you want, but you only have a six month to a year, you know, period where that hardware is still going to be 
viable on the market, and then suddenly it's obsolete and you have to discount it heavily. Um, so you're constantly caught in this cycle to get at the next hardware, you know, the next product, the next little incremental innovation, the next semiconductor. And all of this takes enormous you know, investments far, far ahead of time that might not even work out. They're very risky. The market fluctuates. But let's say you have a giant like China coming in and you know, China has its own uh, national semiconductor plan and the Chinese government gets together all the big um, semiconductor makers and then they just flood the market with you know, the new AI semiconductors that are going to be used by, I don't know, it might be a company like um, LG of the future or you know, Alibaba, some of these big uh, you know, a Tencent, these are some major Chinese tech firms, um, you know, if they were to flood the market with non-memory semiconductors, yeah. uh, you know, then a company like Samsung or even, you know, maybe even another um, Japanese or American company, Intel, I mean, these guys will be in a lot of trouble because there's simply no way that they can respond with, you know, an onslaught of their own. Uh, they, they don't have government support anymore. Um, that tradition has been dying and, you know, no matter what Samsung does, you know, they're, they can make the next semiconductor or make the next smartphone. Um, but the fact of the matter is that, uh, you know, even if the Chinese are behind them, like the Chinese are only going to be six months behind them or, you know, four months. And they're going to be able to make it a lot cheaper and they're going to be able to follow up on every Samsung product with something that's just as good or maybe even yes. better at some point. So, yeah, it's, um, you know, I think the only saving grace right now for a lot of these companies is... The, uh, the U.S. sanctions that the Trump administration put on. I mean, that's I, that's really the only thing I think that's going to insulate American and Japanese and Korean companies from, you know, some kind of just Chinese hardware, you know, just uh, like some kind of unstoppable force. But it, uh, it's not going to be a barrier for long. It's a temporary barrier. Yes, it's a temporary barrier. And, uh, you know, I, I don't I agree with you. I don't think it's going to last forever. I think that it's it's simply too hard to set up a barrier like that and to expect that it will continue on and on and on. Um, yes. But then the other thing, of course, is that you have to remember that a lot of Chinese technologies being developed now are also being developed for military applications. Yes. I mean, China is a military power. And once you have the military involved, um, that really speeds up the pace of innovation. The yes. military has a lot of money. You know, it's a national priority. It's, uh, you know, it, it can unify a lot of these companies into these consortiums and, and tell them, you know, to make... You know what? What is the latest technology that's needed? That's needed for a laser-guided missile. And yeah. then, you know, imagine if that is, you know, that's making its way into the civilian world in some other form. You know, like a year after it comes in for the military. Um, so that, that, I mean, that's going to really just boost the pace of innovation in China. And you know, a company like Samsung, uh, Sony, uh, maybe even Apple one day. I mean, a lot of these companies, they're they're going to have a lot of trouble. Um, you know, keeping their products safe from that kind of attack. Well, I think that I think that the strong companies will do well, but a locus of influence will shift east over time. It's inevitable. It um, is. As China wisely, and not just China, I mean, we're talking about Asia Pacific in general, wisely invests their capital and produces their own consumer classes who can feed um, a revenue for their businesses, it's inevitable they invest that, produce better products. And at some point, maybe we won't be buying Western products in certain categories because the Asian stuff is just in, is just so much more superior. Yes, yes. And I think that the area that we should all be looking at now is especially artificial intelligence and any kind of software-based um, software based, uh, kind of um, you know product. Uh, I, I think that smartphones are becoming more and more software-based. Yes. They have for a while, but um, it really is becoming more about the thing on the screen 
instead of the, the hardware yeah. itself around there. And I think that China is different in that they've actually got that software base going. I mean, they have their yes, own. And uh, I think that's going to really make them even more of a power than Japan was before them. I mean, I, I'm sure a lot of people can remember the days when there was this, you know, this this Japanese menace coming in and people yeah. were talking. In America, they were talking about the second Pearl Harbor in the 1980s yes. and, you know, Japanese cars are putting us out of business and, and all this kind of thing. Um, that turned out to be all overstated because Japan was in the midst of a major bubble. And, you know, a lot of the Japanese investments coming into America and Europe were, were actually just the result of the overheating of their currency. There was a currency readjustment in the 80s. Yeah. Uh, so structurally, Japan was not really in a position to, you know, overtake anybody. I mean, they, they could certainly you know, supplant the market with their own products and, you know, they could certainly make the Walkman really popular, but in the end, they just didn't really have the population or the size. I mean, they had an aging population. They didn't really have the structure in place that would sustain, you know, some kind of major technological force in the world. Um, if you look at China, sorry, what was that? What I'm saying it's also the mentality, right? I mean, there are only two countries in the world that think they should run the world besides the United States. That's Russia and China. Yes, yes. It starts and, with what you believe, and I think only the Chinese and Russians actually believe they should run the world. Nobody else. Yes. Yes. And that's true. It is, it is about the mindset. And, you know, Japan, I don't think Japan ever really wanted to run the world. And not only that, but the success of Japan's economy and its technology and industry in, in those Cold War years um, was partially the result of this U.S. and exactly. allied defense umbrella. The umbrella. I mean, Japan, yeah. Japan did not have a, a standing military, didn't need to spend money on expenditures and, and all this kind of thing. Um, and then also, you know, the presence of bases uh, had a big influence on the economy in the early days. So there was um, lots of contracting that, that taught. So Japanese companies were able, you know, these new companies uh, that weren't destroyed in the war, they were founded. So this is like Sony and um, uh, the Honda. I mean, these were called the Karitsu and they were started yes. after World War II. Um, but they were essentially using military technologies from the war for civilian purposes but it was really only with the presence of so a lot of these military bases, uh, these foreign military bases, ironically, that you know had really high standards for you know they had military grade standards for their contracts in Korea and Japan, and you know this is what allowed companies in Japan and Korea. So also like for example uh, Hyundai, the car maker, um, you know they were making infrastructure and roads, and you know to to reach that level where you know where you're working for the U.S. military, like you really have to have a high standard. Yes. Of um of quality and and you know durability and and just uh, you know you, you really have to have a world class company that you're overseeing to to get to that level. So uh, China does not have any of that. And I think what's interesting about China is that its inventions, um you know, have been through a mixture of I, you could say the technology. Politely, it's called technology transfer. So signing yes. deals with foreign companies that say you know according to this you have to transfer your IP intellectual property, um, you know, if you want to work with us and we're going to, we're going to get some control over it. Um, but, uh, you know, China has really done a, a good job of, of creating an indigenous, yes. you know, and it's like an indigenous market and ecosystem that really doesn't depend on, you know, foreigners or outsiders, you know, they really can stand on their own. Whereas Japan, uh, you know, during those cold war years, I mean, especially after world war two, uh, I mean, Japan was, in a famine, I mean, it, the U.S. had sadly used atomic weapons on yes. Japan. I mean, it was it was destroyed, and it was not a country that simply could stand on its yes. own. It needed uh, massive amounts of foreign aid 
and, you know, defense expenditures and military bases and, you know, just things that could help it rebuild. And the same was true of Korea, that this was not a nation uh, that had prospects uh, on its own. South Korea, I mean, South Korea was yeah. was really, was not well off. Um, North Korea was wealthier than South Korea back in the early days. Yeah, uh, it had been invaded already by North Korea. There, you know, there were Chinese and, and Soviet interests that were hostile to South Korea. And, you know, I mean, this is another example of a nation that just, it needs that umbrella to build into this, you know, this major technological powerhouse. And that's what's so interesting about China is that it's not, um, it's not that, you know, it's, it's its own thing and it stands on its own. And yeah, I, I think that the Chinese government thinks that it should have a big say over how the world is run. And that's what we're seeing right now is that we're, we're seeing the clash of the Titans. You know, we're yeah. seeing, um, China, Russia, America, uh, you know, just, just kind of getting into this geopolitical, this new order where we're not totally sure how things are going to be sorted out in the end. The, the EU is starting to disintegrate. Um, you know, it's it's just not very clear, you know, like who's going to be on whose side and who's going to be in whose sphere of influence. And it's almost like we're entering this new kind of great game where, mm -hmm. you know, I, I would just, I, I mean, if I were a, a marketer or maybe a strategy person, um, I would probably be more, more worried about the time that we live in for our bottom line, for businesses than uh, any other time in the past, you know, 20 or 30 years, yes. because I think that there's so much more uncertainty. And as we've seen also with coronavirus and, you know, with um, some of the, the changes in sort of, you know, how uh, diseases spread and how businesses done, how technology is created and, you know, concerns about how AI is being used to surveil people. I mean, I, I think that we're actually on the edge of kind of this brave new world. And we just, we don't really know in terms of, business, like which investments are going to pay yeah. off right now or who's going to be controlling things 10 years down the road. Yes. I mean, you know, the way I look at it, to put it in perspective, is as a capitalist nation, China is still a baby. Yes. And we don't know what this baby is going to grow into. And I don't mean it in a negative sense. We just don't know who is going to be the Samsung of China. And you know, to, to think about this, in the West, we don't even know the most popular singer in the world because that person is probably in China and we've never heard of them. Yes. So everything we know is just of our world, but there's a whole world that's wild off and we don't know what's going to happen as those companies start moving across the world. Yes, I agree. I and mean, we really don't know. I don't think anybody knows. And I think anybody who claims to know, they're ultimately relying on conjecture and, and hypothetical guessing. I, I think that, um, you know, I, I think that, let's say, if we were to go back to even, let's say we went back to the release of the iPhone in 2007, yeah. Um, people back then were mocking the iPhone. I mean, yes. Microsoft uh, made fun of it. Um, with, Blackberry uh, with... made fun of it. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Blackberry made fun of it, even though they were about to collapse. They didn't realize that. Um, you know, Samsung employees made fun of it. Uh, LG made fun of it. Sony made fun of it. I mean, everybody was basically mocking this thing, and they were saying, why the heck would anybody need, you know, a, a little computer in their pocket? Because the screen is small, and it's mm -hmm. kind of awkward to use. And I think that, um, you know... That, that was a time when people didn't realize that they were on the edge of a lot of uncertainty and how things were going to turn yes. out. Nobody really knew what was going to happen, but they were being dismissive of the changes that were coming. And now, I mean, look at us. We're more than a decade later now. We're in 2020. And uh, just the, the entire world, I mean, the, the way that we do almost everything has just been changed in incredible ways. I mean, social media, Twitter, uh, elections, president, the way presidents communicate with their people, um, you know, Twitter mobs, like, you know, the um, the rise of 
you know, data privacy problems and these little surveillance devices in our house that are made by Amazon that listen to everything we do. I mean, our smartphones are tracking us everywhere. Like, you know, and I'm listing a lot of negatives, but there are a lot of positives too. Uh, I don't want to be too hard on some of the changes that have been made, but it's just, you know, nobody anticipated this world that we would live in. I, I think very few people anticipated how extreme the changes would be in the fabric, like the very fabric of our societies and how they work. And uh, I don't think anybody would have anticipated that like Huawei in China would be a big yeah. player now. And that the Chinese were just, back then, they, when the iPhone re- was released, they were just making cheap knockoffs. On that note, thank you so much, Jeff. I absolutely enjoyed this call. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate that. And thanks for having me on. Yeah, it was very nice. I think we covered a lot of things, but I really like the fact that we stepped above sort of Samsung to look at what it means for the global tech industry. Why does Samsung operate this way? How does tech companies evolve? I really liked it. It was a very, very good good call. I think everyone's going to find something here that's going to be useful for them. Good, good. Yeah, that's great to hear. And that's actually, you know, what I find more interesting too is, I guess just talking about Samsung would probably not interest as many people, but being able to ascend above that and look at the global implications and look at what's going on in the world. I think that's yeah. where that's where a lot of interest lies right now. Yeah, trying to understand how Samsung's strategy changes, how they're moving from being insurgents to being incumbents and how they're going to take on companies like Huawei and so on. Very, very interesting. Thank you so yeah. much, Jeff. Hope you uh, have a good weekend and we'll be in touch. You too. Talk soon, Michael. Take care. Take care. Ciao. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.